That's right. We're all glad for the AC. That's going to be the format. Yes. Yeah. It, correct. Thank you, Brother Johnny. It's going to be the same format as we were doing out there. We still we won't like have a children's service or nursery yet. We will still have a children's sermon like we were doing with Micah and, and Will doing those things. So it's going to be basically the same style or format of it. So we will still have those same things there. Uh, I'm going to try to have little activity sheets for the kids. If you want to bring crayons and, or if you are a big kid, bring your own crayons and you can do whatever you need to do, just some coloring or whatever you like to do, try to help them out. But anyways, but we're going to be in Revelation chapter number three. And we started last week kind of going through a little bit with the book of Revelation. And as most of you or some of you may know, we started before all this pandemic stuff. We were going through in Sunday school chapter by chapter the book of Revelation. And so in praying about what to pick up on Wednesday nights, it was not that difficult for the Lord to say, hmm, there might be a little interest in this book of Revelation right now with that. And uh, so anyways, and so I just want you to know the difficulty it is for me, uh, if you were a part of Sunday school, if you remember, I guess it's been like almost feels like a year ago now, almost, is that I took one week per church of the seven churches. So to condense that is a kind of a lofty goal for me, for y'all that know me real well. But last week we looked at kind of just to give you a little brief kind of reminder, kind of the idea what the book of Revelation is about. And if there's a book of the Bible that people stay away from because of fear, not understanding it, it's the book of Revelation. But if you look at the book of Revelation, especially in the first chapter, it says in chapter number one, um, verse number three, it says, Blessed is he that readeth and he that hear the words of the prophecy and keep those things which are written. And it says, why? For the time is at hand. It's the only book of the Bible you'll ever see a promise of blessing to those that read it, those that listen to it, and those that apply it. I mean, it'd be really nice if that was Psalm, right? I mean, there are obviously blessings in obeying in Psalms. I mean, it's pretty evident when you look at that as far as that. And chapter 1 is just a chapter that deals a lot with the revealing of Christ. Remember John the, uh, John the Beloved, John the Disciple, is exiled on this island of Patmos for doing what I'm doing today. And they said, basically, we're not going to kill you. We're just going to keep you from telling people about Christ. And Christ says, well, let's just do the book of Revelation. And so we have this here for thousands of years later. And we look at this, and we saw everything, kind of the understanding of it. And if you remember, chapter 1, verse number 19, kind of gives us the outline of the book of Revelation. So if you see the outline of the book of Revelation, it says in chapter 1, verse 19, Write the things which thou hast seen the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. If you look at that, that's an outline of the book because he says, write the things which thou hast seen. That's things in chapter 1. You say, what did he see in chapter 1? John has always saw Christ at best, the resurrected Savior, the sacrificial lamb. And Jesus shows himself as the conquering king. He, sits to, he gets to see Jesus in all of his glory. He says, write those things. But he also says, the things which are. That means the things that are now occurring. And that's chapters 2 and 3. That's the seven churches that we're going to continue studying about tonight. And he's talking about those things with the seven churches. And we'll get into that a lot more in a moment. And then he says, also in the things which shall be hereafter. That is chapters 4 through 22. All the stuff we're like, Ooh, okay, stuff that you kind of feel like is happening right now. You know, a little bit, somewhat. And so we'll see a lot of those different things there. And so we saw that, and then we got into chapter 2. 2 and 3 deal with the seven churches, the seven churches of Revelation. 
the seven churches of Asia. Just to give you an idea, these are literal churches. These are churches in what we call Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And there's a lot of different things, and you'll find out this in the book of Revelation. Anyone that says they got Revelation totally figured out is lying. Uh, there's a lot of symbolism. There's a lot of different things that happens in the book of Revelation, but it's definitely a wonderful book for us to understand that these are seven churches. Some people believe these are seven different time periods in time. I personally don't believe that. Personally, I believe that these are seven different churches and that any of those are applicable to me today because, as I mentioned last week, the first church was what? Ephesus, the church that lost its love for Christ. And I, let me tell you, I'm definitely in my lifetimes, in my life, I have had times where my love for Christ has waned. I'm not just the Laodicean church that's lukewarm at times. So I think it's applicable to all different ages. If nothing else, there's a lot of things that we can get. And we looked at these different churches. Now, one thing I didn't mention last week, but I want to tell you this week, and I tell you, it's really weird for me to do this with a video here because I don't have a TV. So I just got to keep turning around and make sure I'm not letting you watch cartoons up here or something like that, okay? Jeremy, let me know if we start watching, you know, something funny. All right? But anyways, but basically, Jesus rebukes these churches. Now, there's seven of them. Can I tell you something right off the bat? Two of them, he doesn't say one negative thing about them. And I say, what's the big deal? Okay, picture this. Imagine somehow God, through Christ, sent us a letter to the church at Emmanuel. And the church at Emmanuel, and he says, these are the things I know you do. These are the things I love about you. These are the things i got a problem with. That would be pretty intimidating, wouldn't it? To think about that, the things that you're doing, the things that are part of your life. And so he writes these letters to these churches. And by the way, he talks about unto the angel. By the way, the word angel there means messenger. I'm under the persuasion that since angel means messenger, it means to the pastors and the leaders of these churches. And so he basically has two reasons of why he writes to these churches and to rebuke them. And you say, well, why, why does he want to rebuke them? He rebukes them because he loves his church. He loves his people. You say, well, rebuke doesn't sound like love. Let me ask you, if you ever get on to your kids, why do you get on to your kids? Because I've just been waiting to get, no. You do it because you love them, right? You want to see them to do what's right. And Jesus loves his church too much to pamper it. He loves it too much, so he wants to warn, he wants to convict them, not just in the first century, but in the 21st century. Why? Because the church, and like we're studying, it's just kind of funny how God works things out, how we're studying on Sunday mornings about the armor of God, because the church is in a battle. We're in battles for our families, we're in battle uh, for our marriages, and the battle that we're tempted with today as believers is the same thing they're tempted here. Turn from Christ to sin to self. And that's what we see here. And we see how Jesus talks about these different things. But as you see up here, reasons why he rebukes his church. First is because of warning of compromise. Compromise means tolerance of evil, which is sinful things, but also of error. And what I mean by that, and we'll see a lot of that tonight in the churches that we'll get to, hopefully, is um, not just sin, but allow false teaching to come in. And don't raise your hand, but have you ever been in a church at one point that was doctrinally right, things were taught right, and then all of a sudden it's like you left, came back, and all of a sudden it looks like air had creeped in a little bit. And when those things creep in, the people have to determine, are we going to tolerate it or are we going to deal with it? And that's kind of a difficult thing, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But why were these churches, five of these seven, 
because only two, which is Smyrna and Philadelphia, didn't get any rebuke at all. Why did they get why did they get blamed for their compromise? Why did they tolerate evil and sin? Well, pretty much the same reason we tolerate evil and sin. You know why? We tolerate because of financial gain, social acceptance, or personal safety. That's why we do it. Why do I tolerate sin in my life? Why do I tolerate things that aren't right? Because I do it for either financial gain, to get better off in life, for social acceptance, what I really want you to like me, <laughs> kind of thing, or personal safety. But not only compromise, but another reason Jesus rebukes them is because of complacency, uh, apathy, to be apathetic, with the idea of a lack of love, as we saw with Ephesus last week. The idea is this, and I really think this is something that's prevalent in churches today and believers today and, and me and everyone today. It's the idea when it comes to Christ, it's take it or leave it. If it's convenient, I want it, I need it, I take it. If I ain't feeling it, I don't do it. That's that apathetic. That's that carelessness that the Bible warns about, especially as you get over as it talks about the church of Laodicea. And why do we become complacent? Why do you, why do I become complacent? Because we are self-satisfied and we're self-sufficient. Nobody really likes to be dependent a whole lot, do they? You ever sometimes say to yourself when people disappoint you, go, fine, I'll just do it myself. And then I've met people in life that really don't want anyone to help them. They only want to do it themselves, too, that way. But we get that way, and so we see some things here. And just, just kind of wanted to, to put that out just for us to understand. But if you read through these churches that we'll read Scripture here in a moment, I'm just kind of having to you know, play, uh, introduce this a little bit. Every church, Jesus says these words to it. I know your. I know your. Normally it's your works, your patience, your endurance, all those things. And I had this in my notes, and I didn't have it last week. But every church, even the ones that he comes down hard on or the ones you don't see anything wrong with, he says, I know. And I have this in my note. The one who knows us truly loves us deeply. And here's the thing. Even though Christ rebukes, he loves more than he rebukes. And it's the idea that the one who knows us truly loves us deeply. And the thing is, and we're just understanding that. But anyways, last week we looked in chapter 2, the first seven verses deal with the church of Ephesus. And it talks about here, it's an awesome church. All these things that they were doing, they were so active, all these things. But what happened at the end, it says, nevertheless, verse 5, I have someone against you. Verse 4, excuse me, you've left your first love. He's saying, you know what, you got all the good works, you're checking all the boxes, but you know what, you're not doing it for me. Your motivation is wrong. You're just doing it to do it. And remember, verse 5 gave him a good idea of what can we do to help us fall back in love with Christ. And I know you hear me say it a lot, and I need it because I'm preaching to myself. It's not enough to love Jesus in your life. You have to love him more. You say, what do you mean? Whatever it is, the next word you want to put right there. Love him more than whatever it is that you want to put there. In verse 5, he says, remember for who you are, for what repent, turn from your ways, and then do the treasure we have in him with that. And so we go to this next church, okay? And so I kind of zip through that a little bit. That's about the best I can do with that. Y'all that know me real well, that's as fast as I can go, okay, with that. But we're going to be in chapter 2 tonight, and we're going to look at the second church, okay? The church at Smyrna. The church at Smyrna. The church at Smyrna is known as the Suffering Church, okay, the Suffering Church. Now, I'd like to read some things here in just a moment, but some things for you to understand about this church at Smyrna is this. Smyrna was a dangerous place to live at that time. It was a dangerous place to live. It was, uh, Domitian 
was in reign during that time, and he required emperor worship. I mean, whatever you think politically about our political leaders, can you imagine if they required us to bow down and pay homage and worship to them? You're like, that's the dumbest, craziest thing I ever heard. That's what these people of Smyrna had to do. That idea was this. They had and the idea of emperor worship, and if you remember from back Sunday school, it seems like a year ago, they had this altar set up in the center of the city of Smyrna to Domitian. And what you had to do, many people think it was monthly, some people think it was yearly, whichever one you look at, what you would have to do is come to the center there, and they had soldiers there, and you would have to uh, pour out incense onto the altar there to say, I worship as God, the Roman emperor. You're like, well, I'm not going to do that. Well, if you did it, you got this certificate. And the certificate allowed you to eat, it allowed you to trade, and it allowed you to work. If you didn't, it's going to be real hard eating. No one's going to want to trade with you. And you're not going to be allowed to work. So when you look at this, a lot of times they said they even would find people if they did not, could not prove their certificate that they did for that year or however often they did it. If they did not show their certificate, they would take them and imprison them and some people even killed for bowing down and worshiping. So if I can say it like this, there weren't a lot of casual Christians at Smyrna. There weren't a lot of, lot of take it or leave it, oh, I'd rather do this today. Oh, I think I'd rather do that today. You know, a lot of times we think to ourselves that we're suffering a lot. You know, we're dealing with things. Really, in, in perspective, in our country, I know things change and things are shifting, and I do sometimes wonder and worry a little bit about what my kids and grandkids will have to look forward to. But can you imagine being a parent in this day? Can you imagine? He's like, as you, I would not bow to that. But then you got a wife and you got two or three little kids behind you. That urge to what? Compromise. You can still love God. Just bow down and worship him. Sounds a whole lot like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Just do it. Who cares? Like the idea to compromise. But the idea is that they really had to believe and they really had to stand for their faith. So let's look how they're addressed in verse number eight. So all that, we kind of got into the verse here. And unto the angel or the messenger of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Now, do you see how Christ addresses them? Remember back in chapter number 1, um, excuse me, chapter number 2, how did he address the first church at Ephesus in verse 1? He said the one that had the stars in his hand, the one that's walking about the different churches, how does he address them in verse number 8? He addressed them what? The first and the last, the one that was dead and now is alive, the one that is resurrected in that. Because you know why he addresses them that way? Because Jesus knows that some of these people to whom he's writing this letter are probably going to have to give their lives for the gospel. To give their lives for, honestly, which sounds crazy, what we're doing tonight. What we're doing tonight, to have to give their lives for that. Now, look at verse number 9. He says, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. So what he's saying here in this first part, he says, I know your works. That means I know your actions. I know your tribulation. I know your afflictions. I know your poverty. That means I know your circumstances. And he says that. And you think about it. When we read that, we're like your works, tribulation, poverty. But I want you to understand something. It's just like Jesus is saying this to this, these group of people that are suffering. Tonight, and however much suffering or whatever you're going through tonight, God knows your actions. 
He knows your troubles or afflictions, and he knows your circumstances. And to me, that's a wonderful thing to know, that I have a God that knows my afflictions, he knows my status and circumstance in life, and he knows the things that I do. And that's an encouraging thing for me to look at that. Now, that poverty there. But do you notice, and by the way, Smyrna was one of the most poor of the churches. Not maybe the poorest, but one of the poor churches. But what does he say in verse number 9? But thou art rich. And you read that. You're like, wait a minute. So we, we don't even got a certificate so we can buy, sell, eat. We're being persecuted. Why are they, why is he saying they are rich? Why is he saying, at the end of verse number 9, where he talks about, he says, You're, they, they know the blasphemy of them. That means they were being slandered by the other people. They were being slandered. All these things that were happening uh, in this. I mean, you think about everything that's going on. He says, but you are rich. Now, before I say that, let me just throw this question out in application tonight. Let's just imagine for a moment we're in church. We're all going to give the Sunday school answer, okay? I already know that. What if you could in your life right now, everything that you're dealing with, everything you face mentally, physically, emotionally, what if you could trade places with the wealthiest person that lives in Millersville? Wealthiest person in Georgia. Wealthiest person in the world. Does even the thought of that tempt you? Does even the thought of that appeal to you? But I said, if you did that, you'd have to give up your relationship with Christ. You know, when things are going good, I say, no way. I don't think about that at all. But what about when you're going through struggles? What about when you're going through these things? What about when you're going? And that's why, and we're like, no, we wouldn't do that. And that's why Jesus says you're rich. He says you're rich, not because you have money. He says you're rich because you have me. Because all of us know this in, our room, in this room, that if we know Christ, there's been times in our life where we had no peace, we had no hope, we had no joy. But whenever we get saved and whenever we live a life that's pleasing to Christ, when we're in Christ, as it talks about in Ephesians so much, there is joy, there is peace, there is guidance, there is direction in life. There's the, that whole thing of understanding those hard things you face in life, that really those things that you can't put a money, a money value on. That we're rich in Christ. And sometimes, I think what the Savior is trying to tell him here is this. He says, I know what you have earthly right here, and I know what you're facing. He said, but I want to encourage you with something. He said, I want to encourage you that you're rich in me. And I tell you, my life sometimes, well, a lot of times, would be, I would act a little different, complain a little less, if I realized really how rich I am in Christ. Instead of how poor or afflicted or however you are, whatever you are right now, in the world. And I think we all face that. We all deal with that. Because what are painful times supposed to do? They're supposed to build us up. They're supposed to make us stronger. They're supposed to help us in that. And just for a moment, let's look at verse 10. Because each one of these churches, by the way, this is just philology. This is my opinion. I think each one of these churches has, like, in their little section, like a main verse. My main verse, I think, in my opinion, for Smyrna is verse number 10. It says, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer, Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, and that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Wow, those are some pretty hard words. <laughs> now just imagine if Christ somehow sent to us, hey, I just want you to know all these things that you're facing. Don't fear any of those things. Some of you are going to get thrown into prison. Some of you are going to face death. And he says, you know what? Be faithful even to the day that you die. And he says, I will give unto you what? 
this crown of life. That's got to be hard words. Why? You know what that tells me, though? No, to me, that's an encouraging verse. You know why? That means something that I think we all need to be reminded of daily. God is the one that allows the testing. So many times in our life, we think Satan is doing this at us and throwing this at us. And, and you know to understand something. If you're a child of God, know that the test of your faith by Satan, who, by the way, is trying to destroy your faith, is allowed by God, who has a purpose for your testing. There's a purpose in your testing, in your suffering, in your frustration, in your I don't know why in the world this is happening tonight. It's you know what Satan is saying. I'm going to destroy your faith. But God's the one that's allowed the testing, and God's saying, but you know what? I have a purpose for it, and it's to make you more like me. I think if I asked anyone before I read any verses, I think you might think about it right now. How many of us will want to be more like Christ? I think everybody will be, yes. How many of us think we need to be sanctified, meaning set apart, more like him? Say, yes, what is suffering is the sanctification process. What if in my life, in your life, to be more like Christ means to suffer? Now, now don't get wrong. I'm not, a, I'm not a poverty gospel guy. Unless you are just down and out in life, you're not God. I'm not one of those guys. I'm definitely not the other way that says if you love God, you're just going to have all the money in the world either, okay? Not a prosperity gospel either. But I am trying to be realistic. That sometimes in life, God does allow us to go through things. I know we all run to Job, man. We, we don't, I don't want to talk about Job. Okay, what about Joseph in the Old Testament? There is more written about Joseph in the book of Genesis than there is about Adam, about Abraham, about Noah, about Isaac, and about Jacob. There's more written about Joseph. But any time that they refer to who? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they stop. They're right. They don't say of Joseph. To my knowledge, I think there's at least 15 chapters in Genesis dedicated to Joseph. Joseph, I know, sinned. But every time Joseph faced something, when he went from the pit, when he went to Potiphar, to prison, eventually to the palace, remember what he said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it unto good. Joseph didn't know. We don't know, but God can do this. He's allowing the testing. And so we just need to understand that. It's kind of like in my life and in your life is that, let's just be honest, it's easier to love God when my job is good. It's easier to love God when everybody's healthy. It's easier to love God when my kids act right and, and I'm not getting in trouble at home and, and everybody's, everybody's happy, right? I'm one of these guys, and this is a fault of mine. I, a lot of times, don't want to get to the core of the problem. I just want everybody to be happy. You know why? Because everybody's happy, then life is good, right? It's easier to love God then than it is when you lose your job, someone gets sick, a loved one, all those different things. So when you see this in Scripture, and there's so many things here, okay, I'm like y'all, I feel there's no way you get through the book of Revelation this year. But anyhow, um, I do want to say some of the symbolism. It does say here, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Some people are like, what does that mean? I don't really know other than the symbol of this. There were, the, during the time of Christ, and, and a little bit before, there were ten different succeeding Roman rulers that really persecuted the Jews and believers. And a lot of people believe that those ten days are ten periods of persecution, from even from Nero to Diocletian. And I kind of believe that. If you like history, you like that. If you don't care about history, I'll just tell you that. But he does say this. Be faithful unto death. And I have that underlined in my Bible. You know why? It doesn't say I'll make your life easier. 
And, and I mentioned it earlier, our country, if there is a country that's drunk on the prosperity gospel, it is our country. It is. I mean, and you know why it is? Because people want to know what they got to do to make God happy because they know we're nothing in ourselves. And, and you know, and, and just thinking about those things, and the idea is this, is that if, if, I, if, if I'm suffering in my life, I know God's not happy with me, and, and these people that are preaching this prosperity gospel, if I'm giving them money and I'm doing all these things, and things are still not going right, it's still my fault. So we're still on the hook, so to speak, with that. That's why I hate the prosperity gospel. Because it's all about what you got to do, what you got to do, what you got to do. When Christ has done, and now I live because of what he's done in those things and understanding those things. But he says, be faithful unto death. And I'll say this about the last thing about Smyrna, and then we'll go to the next one, okay? Uh, during this time, remember it says the angel, I believe, is messenger, pastor, preacher. Um, there was a minister during this time at the church of Smyrna, a man by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp was a man, and just think about it, be faithful unto death, okay? So he read this to his church, okay? These letters circulated around. But Polycarp was arrested uh, because of his faith, and he was, taken to, uh, he was taken to the center, and the emperor gave him the opportunity to renounce his faith, even to the point saying, if you won't open your mouth, if you at least dip your finger into the water here, and just sprinkle it on to my statue, I'll let you live. And this is a quote that we have. Voice of the Martyrs is a great thing you ought to check into if you don't know what I'm talking about. But Polycarp said this, Eighty-six years have I served the Lord, and he has never wronged me. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Eighty-six years, he says, I have served the Lord, and look what he says. He doesn't say all these things he does. And he says, basically, of what? God has never failed me. He says, so how can I, out of the 86 years of God's faithfulness to me, not be faithful to him in the end of my life? And what we know about and studying the history of it, Polycarp, in front of his congregation, just to prove a point, the emperor had him tied to a stake and burned alive. That's how he died. Now, you're... None of us, I think, are going to walk out those doors and fear anything like that happening. But you know what I think of in my life? It's really easy to make fun of and belittle the faith of people in the Bible. But a lot of times I've not went through anything close to what these people have had to go through. But the, but the thing here is this. Be faithful. You say unto death, this means to the end. I truly believe this. God's probably not going to ask hardly anybody in this room, if anybody at all. He's probably not going to ask anybody to die for him, but he does ask every one of us to live for him. He does ask us all to do that and to understand and being faithful to that. And I tell you something as we get to the next church at Pergamos. One thing about Matt Chandler I read and I thought was really good about this, and it was convicting for me, so I'm just going to share it to you about me and I'll jump off. In talking about this, Matt Chandler said this. He said, talking about the conviction, he said, this convicts me because the pulpit drives the church. And that scares me to death because it's so true. He said that in his life as a pastor, the way he preaches and the way he lives, actually probably more than how he preaches, the way he lives, the pulpit drives the church. So if he's faithful to God in word and in action, then hopefully the church will follow that. And I tell you, in my life, I wonder the same thing. God, help me to be more faithful. I don't know what that means when I pray that. But God, help me to be more faithful because I truly believe that the pulpit drives the church because of the example 
with that. So we see the next church, the church at Pergamos here. And the church at Pergamos, is, obviously you're looking at it, it's not going to go as well as the other church. It's known as the worldly church. And a lot of great things here that you can see. Um, but church at Pergamos, we see some things here. For the most part, can I tell you about the church at Pergamos? It was a good church. A good church for the most part. There are a lot of things. Let's read verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write these things. These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou beholdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. So let's just look at it. For the most part, when you take the church at Pergamos, and I kind of let the cat out of the bag by saying it's a worldly church there a little bit, but I want you to understand something. For the most part, it was a good church, but there was an issue with it. Let me, let me put it to you like this. Any church anywhere in the country has a reputation, right? Can I tell you this? It takes just a few people to give a church a good name, right? Oh, I know so-and-so goes to that church. They're good people. They're good people. Man, that must be a good church. They're good people. Yeah, I know your church. I know so-and-so. Rascal did cheated me, did it. And know what? The whole church gets blamed for that, right? More than a church name. Let's take a step further. God's name. Let's actually make it where it's important. Sometimes it just takes a couple to make it where it lifts the name of God at a location. Sometimes it just takes a couple just to totally tear it down to for that and to understand that. And they believed Christ. And that's awesome, right? But they accepted and believed in the world. The things of the world were so much them. It kind of reminds me of the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. Remember the one seed that fell among thorns? It actually did take root, and it started to grow. But what happened, it says, and the thorns came and choked it out because there was not a lot of root. And you remember when Jesus explained it? He says, and when it came up, he said, the thorns are what? The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choked it out where it couldn't produce fruit. Man, to me, Pergamus, to me, is really scary. It's like a big mirror a lot of days. Where they love Christ. Man, a little bit of that world's in there, too. And you see that. They were, even to this part of this. And I really see this today in a lot of churches and a lot of Christians. They were mixing other beliefs with Christianity. It's like this. Oh, we believe Christ is the way of salvation. Well, I believe this is the way of salvation. Great, let's all just worship together. Who cares? We're all going to get there, right? And that's kind of the mentality they started to take in in this idea. And here was the issue. Nobody was confronting any false teaching. Everybody was just indifferent. It was kind of like they would gather together, and if they heard the truth, they'd say, amen, great. If they got together and someone preached heresy, they'd just like, well, okay. All right, I don't want to cause any trouble. All right, maybe the next guy I get up will be good. And they tolerated inside. They were indifferent to it. And here's the thing about Pergamus I want you to understand. And like I said, you get a lot of history in it because I love history. Pergamus was a city that worshipped so many gods. They said that basically, like there's a church on every corner in, this, in the Bible Belt, there was an idol on every corner of Pergamus to a different god. They would look, and everywhere you look, and the idea was this with Pergamus. There was pressure to conform. Remember what Scripture says? I think it's Romans 12. And be not conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed. How? By your works? No. By the renewing of your mind, just the mindset that you have in those things and the toleration of that. 
And, and by the way, look how Jesus, who commends them, he commends them on some great things. He says in verse 13, I, I know what you do. I know it's hard to live there. But look how Jesus, remember in, in Smyrna, he says, some of you are going to die. I'm the one that was dead and now alive. Look what he says to them in verse 12 to the church at Pergamos. I'm the one that's got the sharp sword with two edges. That does not sound friendly. That's like, uh-oh. By the way, all these greetings is the image that John saw in chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. Every one of these are. And so you see this, and, and, and to understand this, is that you see how he addresses them. Why does he address them, the one with the two-edged sword? Because he wants to produce the fear of God. Now, now understand me. I'm not mean scared to death of God, but the idea of this, forget the fear of man and being rejected by man. It would be better to be rejected by man than to be rejected by God. It's kind of like people talk about being humble. You would much rather humble yourself before God, as First Peter says, than have God humble you. I do not want God to humble me in my life. I want to, through the Holy Spirit, humble myself because when God humbles, whoo, he still does it in love, and there's grace. But, man, it seems to stick a little bit more, doesn't it? It's kind of like somebody in your life that you know, and they go through stuff, and you're like, okay, they're finally going to get it. And they don't get it. Can I tell you what the truth is? God is very quietly, softly, and graciously trying to get their attention. But God one day will get their attention if they know him. And we don't want to be that way, and we understand that. But it says here in the encouragement in verse 13, he said, I know your works. He said, I know where you live. Look what he said where they live. Look what he called it. He called it Satan's seat. Probably weren't a lot of First Baptist churches or whatever in Satan's seat. There is there. It was an anti-God place. History tells us that there's the altar to Zeus is there in Pergamos. The altar to Zeus is one of the seven wonders of the world today. The altar to Zeus is the largest altar in all the world. It sits 800 feet high. So anyone that came close to Pergamos would see what Pergamos stood for and what Pergamos was about. And so when you see that, obviously, you think it'd be tough to live there. <laughs> you know, it'd be tough to live there in that place there. So if you go on in verse number 14, he says, But I have a few things against thee, okay? Because thou hast, hurt, thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block for the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrines of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. You say, Phil, that's a lot of stuff there. We can dive really deep into it, but can I basically tell you what his issue was of allowing the world and false teaching in? Because when it talks about Balaam, can I tell you what the idea was? Balaam, you can read about Balaam in Numbers chapter 22 and 23. Basically, the Moabites come up to, ba come up to Balaam and says, hey, we want you to curse your people. Your people are going to overthrow us. So the Moabites said, hey, we want you to curse them. And Balaam says, no. But Balaam says, I'll tell you how you can get the children of Israel to turn against God. Remember what he told them? Send your daughters. Send your sons. Let them marry. And eventually they'll take their gods. And then you can dwell together. That's exactly what happened. He said he sent them together. And that's what happened. Those things happened. And so the idea was this. Balaam basically told the king of Moab, just tempt them with their eyes. And that's what happened to the children of Israel. And that's what was happening here. You see a lot of immorality was going on right through here in the church. 
pretty bad. You know, you think about in the church. But he also talks about the Nicolaitans, and I can't even say that word right. But the Nicolaitans, just to study them correctly, were those people of this. We accept all beliefs, all religions, we're all the same. Now remember, I don't even like using the phrase we're right. Christ is right, and whether we trust in Christ is us. It's Christ is right, not we're right and the world's wrong. It's Christ right. It's like people saying, well, I hope God's on our side. Can I tell you that's the wrong mentality? It's not, I hope God's on our side. I hope that we're on God's side. Total different mentality of thinking. Because it's not me versus them. It's me being with him is what it is. And there's a huge difference there with that mentality. So we see that there. And we see Christ's response to them. Look very similar to the uh, church at Ephesus, right? Look at verse 16. Repent. (laughs) That's it. No seven steps. No, do this, do this. No, he says repent. Remember what repenting is, right? It's not just acknowledging what I'm doing is wrong. It's to stop it, turn, and go the other direction. So many of us in our lives, in my life, we know, and God through his love shows us where the error of our ways, and we know it, we acknowledge it, we know we need it, but we don't turn. We just stop for a little bit and keep going. That's not repentance. That's just acknowledgement. That's not turning and going the other direction. Remember John the Baptist, repent. For the kingdom of heaven, heavens at hand. Remember Jesus in Matthew four seventeen, and he began his ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven. Change your ways, and understanding what that meant. But look what he says in verse sixteen. Or else, doesn't sound like a great phrase. My mama used to say that, and normally wasn't great. What came after that? I will come unto thee quickly, and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Who is them? The ones that continue in the worldliness the ones that continue with the compromise. It is one thing to feel like God's not on your side. It's a total different thing in life to feel like God's on the other side, fighting against you. And to understand that. And he says, or else. And there's a lot of great things here. I love verse 17, and I'm just going to say it and jump off of it, just kind of the best that I can. Y'all know, don't believe me in that, I know. But verse 17, remember, he that hath ears to hear, he says that at the end of every one of these churches, he that ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto churches. And it says, to him that overcometh, or him that's faithful, he says, well, I give to him to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and the stone, a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. So you read that right there, right? And you're like, what does that mean? And you're like, I have no idea, right? Can I just kind of give you an idea of what I think it means when it says this? He that ears to hear, let him hear. He that overcomes, he that overcomes the worldliness, that stays true to Christ, he says, I will get to eat of the, what? Hidden manna. Now that hidden manna, to give you an idea, is, an, is a remark back to the children of Israel. Remember, as they went every day but the Sabbath, they had bread from heaven. That'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? <laughs> Just walk up, there it is, you know. And you remember what they did in the Ark of the Covenant. Remember what's in the Ark of the Covenant? Ten Commandments, Aaron, Budding, Rod, and what? Pot of manna. That was the manna that stayed there. And that was a symbol of God's presence. He's telling them, to him that overcomes, I'm not just going to give you manna that will feed you and help you day by day, but I'm going to give you myself. I'm going to give you my presence. And you say, who cares about that? If you know what I mean by saying there's times in your life where you just feel the presence of God in your life that gives you hope, that gives you joy, gives you peace, it is the most refreshing, the most satisfying, the most stilling, if I can say like that, thing in your life. He said, I'll give you that hidden manna. But he also says, and I will give him a white stone. 
Let me just tell you what that means real quick. The high priest, when he went into the Holy of Holies, would wear this vest, if he would. And on this vest was 12 stones, beautiful stones, all different colors, all different types of stones. And it had the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. But in the center was a white stone. Actually, what it is is a diamond. Some of you ladies really like this story now. It's a diamond, okay, right there. But that diamond was in the center. That diamond was set apart. That diamond was the most precious, most valuable part of all those stones. And that diamond was set apart. There's no name in it. And the reason it was there, because it's a symbol of the purity of God, the holiness of God. And when he says here that I will, what, a new name written that no man knoweth, it means this. Do you remember whenever God wrestled with Jacob? Remember Jacob's name, trickster, deceiver? Remember when he asked God to bless him, he said, I'll give you a new name. What do you give him a new name? Israel, prince of God. That God will give us that new name, so to speak, that new name that's for us. Hey, my name that God gives me, so to speak, maybe not a name that you're going to like, who cares, but it just describes that personal relationship with you and God that no one else may understand. And as you can tell here, there's a lot to go through, but we keep going, all right? A couple more minutes, and I appreciate your attention. But we're going to look at the real quick at this church at Thyatira, so at least we'll finish chapter 2. The church at Thyatira is the unrepentant church. Um, if you remember correctly, as we went through our study in Acts, remember Lydia, the seller of purple, in Acts chapter 16? She was from Thyatira. She eventually became part of the church at uh, Philippi. I will tell you this, that of all the letters to the churches, the one to Thyatira is the longest letter. That doesn't mean this is going to be the longest point, okay? But it was the longest letter that he wrote. And here is what this letter was. If I can sum it, just in case our time, which is about to go out, the danger was this. The danger was going on feelings instead of going on the Word of God. Let me give you an example. Uh, going on feelings meaning what I think. So, all right, Brother Johnny, I'm going to use your help here, okay? All right, you don't have to get up. You don't have to do anything. I'm going to try to guess your favorite color. Um... I'm going to try to guess your favorite type of car. And let me see here. What else can I come up with? Your favorite food, okay? I'm going to go on a limb and say, just because I know your favorite color is red. Don't, don't answer yet. Favorite color is red. I'm going to say your favorite food is, I'm going to go real generic. I'm going to say southern cooking, okay? And then I'm going to say your favorite car company is Dodge, okay? So what is your favorite color? Hey, I got one. All right. What's your favorite uh, food? Southern food, barbecue. Southern food. Boom. I didn't know I could do this. All right. Number three. What is your favorite type of car? I got two out of three. All right. Now, you say, why did you do that? He just told me that what I felt was probably it, was Dodge. He said, no, it's actually Ford. Here's what the Church of Thyatira did. I know what the Bible says, but I really feel this way. I hope you know what I mean by that. There's a lot of people that say, I know what the Bible says, but I really feel this way. And the idea was this. They went off feelings and emotions. A lot of people do that. I know what God says here, but I feel like this is okay. I feel like this is all right. And so that was the danger here of this. And the warning he has here in verse 18, and to the angel of the church, Thyatira, write, these things saith the Son of God. Now look at, the, look at the introduction here. Who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. 
That doesn't sound very welcoming again, does it? And he says, I know thy works and thy charity, thy love and thy service and thy faith and thy patience, which is endurance and thy love, and, and the last to be more than the first. Let me tell you this real quick. He says, I will tell you this. He says, I want to encourage you. I know how patient you are. I know how enduring you are. I know how much you do all these different things. In fact, he says, I even know how you're so much further along now than what you were when you first come to Christ. And there's a lot to this, and I'm going to really condense it. Ready? He says, but here's the problem that I have with you. Verse 20, he says, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat the things sacrificed unto idols. Here's what happened. There wasn't actually a woman named Jezebel, but a lot of, us, a lot of people believe there was a woman that came to church leadership, and she wasn't just the leadership of preaching and teaching. She was preaching and teaching like if Jezebel in the Old Testament was the pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Worldliness, pleasure, do whatever you feel. Do whatever you want. If it feels good, do it. It's kind of like judges. Every man did what was right in their own eyes. And the people of the church at Thyatira allowed her to do it, knowing what was right, but just kept letting her do it. Kept letting her seduce them, doing all kinds of immoral things, and all these different things were going on. It's like Jezebel in the Old Testament. If you know anything about Jezebel in the Old Testament, she had a pretty weak husband, Ahab, that allowed her to persuade him to kill prophets and all kinds of things. That's who that type of person was leading that church. But you still see God's grace in verse 21, even to that person. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Even somebody that was preaching and teaching and doing all kinds of horrible things, drawing people away from God and allowing things into God's house, God said, I'm still one to show her grace. You know, I always think about this, and I know I say it a good bit, but there's more grace in Christ than there ever will be sin in you. Never, ever believe that you're too far from God. There's always more grace. He always gives the opportunity to repent. But we see, what does it say? She repented not in verse 22. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of, of their deeds, and I will kill the children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Woo! That sounds like this. It's even worse. He said, not just will I do this to her, but everyone that follows after her, I'm going to bring great judgment. But look what it says in verse 24. But unto you, I say unto the rest in Thyatira, as many have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you no other burden, but that, ye, but that which ye have already hold fast upon. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers even as I received of my father and I will give him the morning star he's saying if you keep following after her I'm going to allow you to go to her judgment he says but for y'all that will stay faithful he says for you that will stay faithful he's trying to say I want the world to know that's not what Christ is about I want you to see what it is and when he talks about this here this idea when he says he that overcometh will I give power of the nations you know what this is a reference to this is a reference I believe personally uh, to this this is a little bit of philology but I think it's this is my opinion I believe this is talking about where it's talking about ruling and reigning in the millennial kingdom that will rule and reign with Christ and being faithful 
in those things. And when it says the morning star, I'll give him the morning star. The idea there is talking about shining like the stars in the heavens. But also, who does Christ refer to himself at the very end of Revelation? What do we sing about? He's the what? The bright and morning star. I don't know if you noticed a trend here. Christ says, for those that stay faithful, I will give my presence to. For those that won't, I will remove my presence. And eventually I'll have to judge. Because God doesn't want us to tolerate sin. God wants us to remember who we are. That's why it says in verse 20, he says that thou sufferest or you allow that. And we see one thing I find very interesting, and I close with this. One thing I need to remember, and I'm not wanting you, I do believe God is a God of love, but God is a just God. We need to remember something about God in our lives. God does give warnings, and I'm so thankful for him, but can I tell you something? God's warnings do expire. Look at verse 21. He offered to what? Repent, and she would not, therefore. And you know, a lot of times in life, people think, well, God does this and God does that. You know, I think the whole time God's offering opportunities. And so we see this church, this unrepentant church. And we see a church here that obviously just fails. And I know it doesn't leave us on a happy note, (laughs) but we're going to try to get through chapter 3 next week. But I just want to encourage you.